Take your Bibles tonight and go to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua 9. Always thankful for the opportunity to preach. As we continue through. Did anyone do a wellness check on Harlow this afternoon? She's not in her cage? All right. Though, I just took that as a mistake from a dog owner that has had dogs longer than has had a, a baby, right? But, but really, at the end of the day, babies and dogs are kind of the same thing, aren't they? they? They make messes. They make noises when you don't want them to make noises. But after about 10 or 12 years, eventually dogs obey. So, <laughs> Joshua 9 this morning, this evening. There we go. Now I, now I just have to hope I don't say anything that Colin can use against me next week. So, we'll see. Joshua 9, as I, was, I found this quote about the book of Joshua uh, that I really thought was very enlightful. The book of Joshua is a record of God's faithfulness to his covenant people. It underscores the need of the believer to be obedient if he would appropriate all that God has, de- has designed for him. It is, a, it is throughout a testimony to both the might and grace of a sovereign and holy God. And even as we saw last week, as Steve talked about, a very, very difficult topic uh, with, with, within Scripture when we see just the, the book of Joshua is a very brutal book when you really look at it and see all that goes on and all that takes place. And, um, but, but in it, we see God's might, but we also see his grace. We see his sovereignty. We see his holiness. Uh, Joshua 9, we're going to read the first 15 verses and we'll pray and uh, jump right in. And it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side, Jordan, and the hills and in the valleys and in all the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and, all the, and, and the Jebusite heard thereof that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work willily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles old and rent and bound up and old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them and all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp of Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, we come from a far country. Now therefore make a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, peradventure you dwell among us. And how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye? And from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country, thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings, the Amorites, that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon, uh, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go and meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Therefore now make ye a league with us. This our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. Now behold, it is dry and it is moldy. And these bottles of wine which were filled were new, and behold, they're rent. And these our garments and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. And the men took counsel, uh, I'm sorry, and the men took of their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them and let them live and the princes of the congregation swear unto them. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for another time that we can gather and we can worship you. And uh, Lord, thank you for how good you've been to us. And Lord, we're thankful for uh, what we find in your word. Lord, what we can glean from it. Lord, I pray you take the truths, uh, Lord, that you've shown to me. Lord, as I've studied this passage, I pray that, uh, Lord, you'd help me to communicate them clearly. Uh, but Lord, most of all, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in a way that I cannot. I pray you'd convict, you'd encourage, uh, Lord, whatever each person needs here today, you know the need. I pray you'd meet that need, and I pray we each determine now that we're just going to simply obey your word. Uh, for it's in your name we pray, amen. Have you ever agreed to something that if you knew all the details, you wouldn't have agreed to it? Anybody ever been in a situation like that before? Uh, perhaps someone said to you, could you do me a quick favor? Who's gotten in trouble with that one before? Uh, Jerry Seinfeld has a bit about that. He says there's two types of favors, the big favor and the small favor. And you can measure the size of the favor by the pause the person takes after they ask it. Uh, small favor, small pause. Big favor, big pause. He says, can you do me a favor and pass me that pencil? No pause. Big favors are, could you do me a favor? And you know that's the time to pretend you got a phone call and get out of there because it's not going to be a small favor. Uh, and then you get roped into something that was supposed to be a favor, but turns out to be a big project. Um, growing up with three brothers, we were always trying to prank each other. <clears throat> and you had to be on guard at all times. And if, if, if you have a brother, and uh, one of the red flags, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the red flags that something's amiss is when they're being nice to you. Brothers aren't nice to each other, and when they are, something's up. I remember that uh, one of my brothers made me a deviled egg, and uh, he, he gave that to me, and I ate it, enjoyed it. It was, a, it was delicious. Until later, he told me how he made it. He uh, had boiled the egg like you would normally do, but he took the yolk, and he put it in his mouth, and that's how he mixed it up and put it back into the egg and formed it and only told me after I had eaten it. Another time, I... Younger brother, um, it, was, it was fall, so we, we always had apple cider uh, in the refrigerator at fall time in, in Michigan, and um, I remember we, me, me and that same brother, we decided to pull a little prank on our younger brother and offered him a glass of apple, um, of apple cider, but instead we filled the whole cup with apple cider vinegar, and when he went to drink that, he was very shocked. And then another time we gave him some juice with tuna juice. and So we, we, we weren't very kind to each other. Another thing you need to know if you're growing up with, th with three brothers is when you're at a Chinese buffet or any buffet or any place where food is involved, uh, it's not a good idea to get up and get more food unless you all get up to get more food at the same time. Uh, my younger brother, again, learned this the hard way when he came back to take a sip of his Pepsi after getting another plate of whatever type of Chinese food, and only to find a good-sized chunk of wasabi we had put into his straw for him to drink as he uh, enjoyed that, that Pepsi. In Joshua 9, we find the children of Israel agreeing to something that if they knew all the details, they wouldn't have agreed to it. And as we read through, and as, as we work through the text, what we're going to do is we're going to just work, work right through the text. I'm going to just, we're going to just talk about each point and uh, each, each part of it, really four groups of people that we see in it and, and their role uh, in, in this passage, and then a few truths to take away. But two of the major truths of this passage are, are, are really this. The enemy seeks to destroy God's people in many different ways. We're going to see that in this passage. But then on the flip side of that, God's grace is able to make good of poor choices that we make. 
Who's ever made one of those poor choices in your life? Maybe not as silly as those ones we, we discussed, and, but made a poor choice. But then you gave it to God, and God was in his grace and his mercy able to redeem that and able to even bring about something good of that poor choice. The Canaanites, as Steve pointed out last week, they were wicked people whom God had given really hundreds of years of mercy But now time had come for uh, God to clean house in Canaan and finally give the promised land uh, to Abraham's children that he had promised him about 500 years before. So as we look through this passage, I want you to notice four things as as we work through and and, and then we'll make some application that I hope will be a help to you uh, tonight. In verses 1 through 2, we we see this. We see Canaan's counterattack. Canaan's counterattack. In the last chapter was the the ambush at Ai, the battle of Ai, and uh, utterly destroyed. And it says in verses 1 through 2, when the uh, surrounding nations heard what had happened, notice in verse 2, they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. These nations had heard what Israel had done to Ai. And instead of saying, let's wait around for us to each take our turn with Israel, they said, let's band together and let's fight Israel and let's keep our land. And a side note, the church would do well to learn from the Canaanites in this strategy of fighting together against the enemy uh, rather than amongst themselves. We see that a lot today. Churches fighting amongst uh, church members, church, uh, churches all over the country fighting over petty things at times instead of fighting our true enemy, instead of uh, getting out the gospel. But we know these nations were unsuccessful. No army could stand against Israel when they were right with God and following in faith. But the way the Canaanites attacked openly and with full force is the same way that Satan attacks us. There are times where Satan attacks very brutally, uh, full force, out in the open. We see that all around us today. Just turn on the news for five minutes. Just scroll through social media for five seconds, and, and you'll see the attack of Satan on our families, on our children, on our culture, all around us. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the, wicked, uh, of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan's attacking the home today. He's attacking the church. He's attacking our culture aggressively and openly. His tactics are brutal, and he means business. And that's why the next verse in Ephesians says, Take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. But the truth is, these blatant and brutal attacks of Satan, if we will simply walk in the spirit like Pastor Colin talked about this morning, and uh, be equipped with the armor of God, the brutal attacks of Satan are very easy to experience victory. I'm not saying that in ourselves we can experience victory, but remember what I said, when we walk in the spirit and are equipped with the the, the armor of God, victory against Satan's brutal attacks are easy because God fights with us. God fights for us. But it's when, as we've seen in uh, Joshua so far as well, when we fight in our flesh, when our flesh is in control and our faith is lacking, Satan will get the upper hand every single time. So we see the Canaanites, the Canaan's counterattack, but then the real story here in this passage is, is next. In verses 3 through 6, we see Gibeon's guys. Gibeon's guys. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done, uh, we, we, we see what they, they, they say they heard what they'd done to Jericho and Ai, and they come up with this scheme. They say, we are hopeless against Israel. 
And they kind of take the approach of if we can't beat them, join them. And, and, and that was the, the, the approach they took on this. Canaan was, if, if you look at the entire region there before Joshua and the conquest of the promised land here, Canaan was comprised of several city-states. You had these city-states which had their different rulers and their different social structures. And Gibeon was one such city-state. It comprised of four different cities. We see that in verse number 17. It speaks of uh, Gibeon and Cherephah and Beeroth, and Kerjath-Jerim. And so these were the cities that comprised this people of Gibeon. And just as Rahab said back in Joshua 2, remember what, what, what Rahab said? She said, I know that the Lord hath given you the land to those spies, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. So the Gibeonites, too, had heard what God had done 40 years ago at the Red Sea, and to those two kings they mentioned of... Um, Og and uh, Bashan, uh, or Sihon and Og, sorry. Uh, now word makes it to them what happened to Jericho and Ai, and they're terrified. And, and there's the other group of Canaanites that say, we're going to attack. Uh, they were unsuccessful. The Gibeonites, or the, uh, the, the people of Gibeon say, let's figure out a way to make a treaty with them. And they really put on a master class of how to scam someone. Uh, there were some pretty great scam artists here. Not that that's a good thing, but they were good at it, uh, and, and they pulled it off. Notice the great lengths they go to uh, to obtain this treaty with Israel. Uh, so it, we, we find they, they create this elaborate cover story, and, and they just come up with a story. They sell themselves on it. They're, we're ambassadors from a far country. Our, our, our uh, government has sent us to make a treaty with you. It reminds me of, I don't know if you're familiar with the during World War II, Operation Mincemeat. Has anybody heard of Operation Mincemeat? Um, in World War II, there was the need for the British to divert the Nazis uh, from attack that they were going to, uh, uh, that's going to take place in, in Sicily. And so they came up with this scheme, and there's actually a movie about it on Netflix. It's very, very interesting. Uh, but they found a corpse uh, in one of the universities, they dressed it in uh, army clothes or what, whatever their fatigues were and all, and all that. And they came up with a backstory for this person. They wrote love letters from this person's fake girlfriend. Um, and, and, and they folded the letter. They every detail to make sure this person seemed like a legitimate person. And then when the time came, they dropped this person, made it, made it seem as if their parachute had failed and, and to the ocean. So it, um, it, it, it's off the coast of Spain. And with it was fake intelligence, uh, as if they were bringing news to a, another battalion saying that they were going to attack in, um, in Greece instead of Sicily. And eventually the Germans bought it. They bought the story, moved their troops from Sicily to, to Greece, and the British were able to attack Sicily with very little opposition. Very similar to this elaborate story that, the, that, that, that Gibeon came up with here. And they go in hoping, praying to their gods that, that, that aren't real, crossing their fingers, whatever they did, that they would accept them. To sell it, they disguise themselves. As you notice, as we read through there, they uh, gather old, worn clothes and sandals with holes. They put patches on them, and uh, they got everyone's food out of the trash, and they, they brought that to make it seem as if they were on a long journey. It uh, reminds me of the show Undercover Boss, which is where the title gets his uh, inspiration from, Undercover Enemy. Anybody ever watched Undercover Boss? You ever wonder? I, I, was, I was talking to my wife about it this morning. I said, is that show really even real? How do those people not know? What, they've got cameras around. 
that's clearly my boss. He just has a mustache now. Um, sounds just like him. It's like the Superman effect. If you just put a, or, or just put glasses on, nobody knows you're Clark Kent. Uh, take them off, then we're then we're Superman. Um, but that's what they did. They disguised themselves. Uh, and they lied about their origin. They said, we come, uh, we, we, they, they, they say to Joshua, they say, we came a long time ago from a country far, far away, and they disguise, and they have this cover story, but the, a disguise and cover story can only get you so far. They had to then really lie to them. It, 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 Israel begins asking questions. Israel hears this and says, all right, how do we know? Joshua says, what if you really live among us? Who are you? Uh, and here's what they did. They, they flattered Israel. They said, we're your servants. They avoided direct questions. Uh, when they, they said, who are you and where you're from? Their answer was, we're from a far country. And, then they, changed the, and the, the, then, they, then they changed the subject. And then they invoked the name of God. They said, because of the name of the Lord thy God, we've come. And they said, here, look at our clothes. Look at our food. See it for yourself. We've come a far way. And in verse 14, it says, the men took of their victuals. So we see Gibeon's guys here. They, they were seeking to deceive. And while the Canaan's counterattack shows one of Satan's strategies of just out in the open, in your face, attack you, try to destroy you, Gibeon shows another side of Satan, our enemy. He'll seek to deceive you. He'll seek to, uh, just like uh, Eve in the Garden of Eden, say, yea, hath God said. He'll seek to spin half-truths and distract you from reality to get you to agree to something that God has told you not to do, that violates God's word, and we reason within ourselves, say, no, this, is, this, this sounds good, which is exactly what Israel does. Uh, next, notice, the, uh, notice Israel's ignorance. In verses 14 through 21, and verse 14 says they took of the victuals, and here's where their real problem comes. Uh, at the end of verse 14, it says, they asked not counsel, at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live and the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And so just a quick reminder of the command that God had given to his people in conquering Canaan. Back in Exodus 34, I'll just read a couple of these verses, but in, in verse 11 he says, Observe thou which I, that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And listen to verse 12. Take heed to thyself. He said, be careful. Make sure you take extra special attention to this. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest. Lest it be a snare in the midst of thee. And then he goes on to say in the rest of that passage, he said not only to, to take them out, but you are to destroy their, their groves and their idols and their images, and you are only to worship me. He repeats it again in Deuteronomy 7, in verses 1 through 4, verse, in verse 2 of that passage, he says, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, and thy daughter shall not be given to your son, or his daughter shalt thou not take unto thy son, for they will turn away thy son from following me. So God was very clear. Do not make a covenant with these people. Do not agree to anything with these people. They will turn your hearts away from me. They will destroy you from within. Uh, he told them clearly anything like this would be a trap that would ensnare them and cause future generations to turn from following God. And so in verse 14, it says, they sought not counsel of the Lord's mouth. And Numbers 27 actually gives us how they were to seek counsel at God's mouth. Joshua is being 
prepared to lead God's people, and Moses is giving instructions to him. And in Numbers 27, uh, he says uh, to him, and they, uh, uh, says of Joshua, and he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Uh, so this Urim was one of two uh, stones that would have been in a pouch of the high priest. And basically a simple way to look, look at it, if you've seen the yes-no button uh, episode of Bluey, it was basically a yes-no button in the, in, in the high priest's pocket. They would ask yes or no questions, true or false questions, maybe, like a, maybe more like an eight ball, but that had more choices. Uh, but basically they just ask the priest... Should we do this? That was the provision God had given them to seek counsel, and Joshua had access to it, but Joshua believed the Gibeonites. He could have just simply said, hey, Eleazar, pull out one of those stones. Should we, yes or no, should we make a treaty with these people? Should we believe them? And the answer would have been no. But instead, they make this treaty. They find themselves doing something we do all the time, walking by sight rather than by faith, where the Bible tells us we walk by faith, not by sight. But how often do we get ourselves in trouble by walking by sight, by making decisions off of our feelings, by making decisions off of what seems reasonable to do rather than seeking the counsel that God has given us? Notice one more thing about this, this, this passage before we tie it all together with some practical application. And this, this part of the story is awesome. In verses 22 to 27, we see this. We see God's grace. We see God's grace in all of it. And so in, in verse 22, it's, it, 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 what we find is they, they make this agreement, and they march towards the same place that these people came from. And after three days' journey, they get to this city, and it is clear that this is where they're from. They're not from a far country. They're from among us, just as they feared and just as they questioned. Israel was mad. Israel was furious at them. Israel was furious at the leaders for agreeing to this. They had been tricked by some cheap theatrics, a sob story, and some flattering words. And in verse 22, Joshua demands an explanation. And Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Wherefore have ye beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you, when ye dwell among us? But two things I notice about the Gibeonites as, as, as we come to the end of the chapter here. Notice in verses 24 through 25, notice their humble plea. They don't say, ha we got you. We wanted to infiltrate you and destroy you from within, and now you have to uh, keep us alive. No, no, notice what they say. Because it was certainly told thy servants how the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to, all, to, to you all the land, to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were sore afraid of our lives because of you, and have done this thing. And now behold, we are in thine hand, as it seemeth good and right unto thee, do unto us, do. So they humbly respond, and they say, hey, here's the truth. We were scared to death of you, and we hoped you'd have mercy on us. But now that you know... Whatever you think is right to do, just do it. We're fine. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And we see them being given grace here in spite of their deceit. 
But at the same time, consider the parallels. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the author of Joshua and God, by inspiration, shows us um, the Gibeonites and their deceit. And also, if you, you can compare it to Rahab in chapter 2. They're both native of Canaan. They both had confidence that God was giving the land to Israel. Like the Gibeonites, she responded with fear before God's people. And like the Gibeonites, uh, Rahab acted with cunning in order uh, that she and her family might find refuge among the people of Israel. She deceived not the children of Israel, but her own people to, to cover and, and to allow the children of Israel to get away. And, but the author of Joshua demonstrates that on more than one occasion, God intends to bless all families of the earth through Israel, just like he had told Abraham back in Genesis 12. We see God's grace shining through and uh, how he saved these Gentiles, even if, in the mystery of his providence, it was through the deceit of Gibeon and the failure of his people Israel. But then in verse 27, notice their honored position. Joshua curses them. Joshua says, you'll be slaves for all generations. And Joshua, in verse 27, made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation. So he gave them hard manual labor. But notice where. It says, for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day, and the place which he should choose. And for several generations, this wicked people, these Gentiles, this, these Canaanites that were supposed to be destroyed, lived among the people of, of Israel and served at the altar of the Lord and brought water and served God's people. Uh, when they were called out on their deceit, they gave reasons in sincere humility, and no doubt the Israelites could have, could have justified saying, well, this treaty is no good because it was built on a lie in the first place. So it's null and void. We have the right to attack you as we were supposed to. But instead, it says Joshua honors it. Joshua uh, allows them to live. And in considering the rest of Canaan, this wasn't a bad deal to have to serve at the altar of the Lord. It reminds me of Psalm 84, verse 10, where the psalmist said, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God in your life? If each of us had gotten what we deserved, we would be in hell for all of eternity. Yet we find ourselves here today serving in the house of the Lord. We find ourselves today able to worship God. We who once were strangers and aliens are now made part of the family of God. And there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So let's tie it all together quickly and, and, and we'll be done. Get you home to watch some basketball tonight. And if you, want, and, and if you check the scores during my message, I pray that God breaks your bracket. Though you're saying it's... <laughs> It's probably broken anyway. That happened to me one time. I, I was at a tent meeting one time, and, um, and, and I, I, guess, I, I guess maybe I was superstitious like that, thinking if, if, I, if I check the score of a game during preaching, it was actually during an invitation at a tent meeting. Um, Justin Verlander had a no-hitter going. Um, it was just during the season, and, and I had been checking it and watching it. And then the invitation, I went up and prayed, so I took care of business with God already. But the, 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 the preacher has was his custom, kept the invitation going and going and going and trying to, and, and, and there's somebody here that needs to get saved. And, uh, but, but anyway, I checked my phone, and as soon as I checked it, base hit, lost the no-hitter. Uh, so I, I don't know if that was the reason, but I always, I've always thought that, that was it. 
practical application. Let's we'll, we'll bring it back in, and we'll 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 um, three statements to wrap it up tonight, and give you something to really think about, and 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 to uh, help you as we face this undercover enemy. Number one is this: seriously consider the enemy's tactics. Seriously consider the enemy's tactics. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says this, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Though that verse in, in its context is talking about the need for us to forgive each other, and when we don't forgive each other, Satan can get the upper hand on us. But the truth is, Satan is always seeking to get the upper hand on us. Satan is always seeking to get an advantage of us, and we know his devices. Uh, he has been both blatantly attacking God's people and, and uh, beguiling them with deceptive half-truths and disguises for 6,000 years. His playbook is exactly the same today as it was in the Garden of Eden, as it's been all throughout history. It just looks a little bit different. It's painted a different color. We know his devices, but we cannot let our guards down. 1 Peter 5 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Uh, be it by all-out war or cunning deceit, the truth is tonight, Satan is seeking to destroy your life. Satan is seeking to destroy your marriage. Satan is seeking to destroy your children. If you can't see it, you need to open your eyes to it. Whether blatantly or secretly, he wants to destroy you. He hates God and he hates you and he'll stop at nothing to destroy you. So seriously consider the enemy's tactics. But number two, seek counsel in decisions. Seek counsel in decisions. We see the mistake the children of Israel made here that they did not seek counsel at the mouth of the Lord. It's one thing to be pranked by a brother. It's another to be roped into uh, some uh, small favor that becomes a project. But it's another thing altogether to make a major life decision without seeking any counsel. Proverbs 25 verse 6 says, For by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war, and in multitude of counselors there is safety. Now there's some people that take this to an extreme and they will uh, schedule a meeting with the pastor for every little decision. Pastor, I'm going to the grocery store. Can I meet with you? And uh, just can you go through my grocery list and make sure that this is kosher? Um, that would be the rabbi. But... Um, much of Satan's deceit, honestly, can be combated by simply tapping into God's spirit within us and God's word before us. And the truth is this, the spirit of God will never lead you to act contrary to his word. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that before? I just feel God is leading me to and fill in the blank and you hear it and say, okay, that's in complete contradiction to God's word. God's spirit didn't tell you to do that. That's just what you want to do. And you're trying to use God's spirit as an excuse. Walk in the spirit. Study God's word. We have access to the word of God. I don't need to come to a priest and say, hey, would you ask God yes or no? Pull a stone out of your pocket and tell me what the answer is. I can look at God's word. God tells me exactly how I need to live. Uh, but there's going to be times when we need a wise person in our life, a parent, a pastor, uh, an, another uh, person in our life who, too, uh, who, who as well walks in the spirit and knows God's word. But too many believers have been destroyed by Satan by diving headlong into a foolish decision, a foolish relationship, 
uh, or otherwise, uh, something that otherwise looked good, but didn't take even a moment to examine it. Didn't take a moment to consider scripture. Didn't take a moment to pray and say, God, is this the right thing for me to do? Is this what you want me to do? And then last tonight, simply confess your failures. One of the greatest truths that I think of this passage is that the failure to make a wise decision doesn't spell immediate doom and destruction. Israel's mistake was not the end of the story. Each foolish decision we make will come with its own set of consequences, but you don't need to continue in the foolishness. Instead, aren't you thankful that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God in his grace has an incredible way of taking the messes that we make, the mistakes that we make, uh, because we didn't seriously consider the enemy's tactics, because we didn't seek counsel and decisions, and he's able to make something good of them. Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so don't take this as a license to I can do what I want and God can make something good of it. Don't make it a reason to do as I please, but those verses are a great relief to know that when I fail, because I will, and so will you, that God is able to take that mistake and I know that's not the end of the story. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So tonight, make a decision. I'm going to take the tactics of my enemy serious. I'm going to guard my family. I'm going to seek counsel uh, that that God has given me. I'm going to seek God's word. I'm going to seek God's face day by day. And when I fail, I'll simply confess and just move forward doing the same again, considering his tactics, seeking God's word. Heads bow this morning and this evening, give you an opportunity to talk to God about what he talked to you about. If you'd like to use the altar, if you'd like to pray with your spouse or pray with someone there and just take a moment and consider what we've said and talk to God about what he talked to you about. Savior.